0: This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with Michelle, who's been recommended for the show many times. Michelle coordinates the blood bank at the animal hospital at Murdoch. This is just one of many interesting phases of Michelle's career, including working as a zoo vet nurse and qualified zookeeper and volunteering on a bear rescue sanctuary in remote Vietnam. Michelle has some great advice on how to be a career veterinary nurse, including being strategic about career jumps, moves, sidesteps, and even exit plans. And this, of course, is the secret to staying fresh and motivated in your career. I really enjoyed interviewing Michelle and feel like we only just scratched the surface of what she has to say. Michelle's happy for anyone to reach out to her with questions about blood banking in practice, so I'll put a link to the Animal Hospital at Murdoch in the show notes. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, are you someone who listens to podcasts? What are you listening to?
1: Uh, I I do, actually, because, you know, like most of us that walk a dog, and I I like walking the dog to get away and have a bit of quiet time. So I try to listen to different podcasts uh, when I'm walking. Um, I I like... (laughs) I'm a bit of a fan of Maggie Dent, uh, so parental as anything. She does. She's a really... Uh, great podcaster um, and has always got some really helpful information about parenting. Um, I'm also a bit of a fan of Blunt Dissection and, and I think uh, I recently listened to the Betsy Charles interview on Blunt Dissection and that was that was quite an awesome podcast. I, I really enjoyed that. And there's this great podcast series out i'm not sure if you've heard of it it's called radio vet So that's pretty good too
0: <laughs> i was just hanging off your every word then about to be like what's she gonna say <laughs> have i heard it <laughs> i'm just having a look at my blunt because i love blunt dissection too yeah. so betsy charles no i haven't listened to that oh, one yet it's fantastic. i'm a little bit behind so yeah. i'm usually right on top i will definitely listen to that one yeah I she, do enjoy she's that
1: one she's got uh, i think because she's got a background in academic and universities um, in the states that's um yeah a lot of what she said resonated with me it's a great interview
0: yeah, and I do find Maggie Dent links on social media that I often read, but I haven't heard her podcast, so I will listen to yeah. it. What ages
1: are your kids? Uh, they are 9, 10 and 13. So yeah. at the moment we're focusing on some of the teenage information that she's got up there, which mm. is just great. Very practical. So, That's cool. Yeah.
0: That's good. And um, where are you from and where do you currently live?
1: Oh uh, Well, I'm, I'm from East London, so um, probably as we continue this chat, People will wonder what on earth has happened to my accent because it can be a little bit all over the place. So, I was brought up in East London and I moved to Australia when I was 22 uh, and uh, lived in Melbourne for a while first, for about the first nine years, and live in beautiful sunny Perth now, which is just spectacular.
0: Excellent. I've been um, seeing just people I'm friends with, vet nurses I'm friends with, in like Adelaide and Melbourne, and it's just freezing there at the moment and they're all rugged up and. We are in like shorts and singlet and about to go for a swim today. So I think Perth's a bit the same, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I think you guys definitely uh, win the award for better weather, but we (laughs) are not too far behind. So I I do like the season. So I do like, I'm a really big snowboarding fan. So Uh. I do, (laughs) don't get to do that here in Perth, um, Western Australia, but I do like having a period of time when it actually is wintry. uh, But yeah, it is really nice to know that, you know, today um, in the middle of autumn, we'll probably head down to the beach for a swim. So where's
0: the closest place or where is the typical place for you to go on a skiing holiday or a snowboarding holiday?
1: Oh, we we just escaped Japan just as the COVID um, yeah. crisis hit. We literally flew out about a week before... Um, yep. things started to get hairy so Japan is um, certainly not the closest I mean the when I lived in Victoria we would just go up to the snow fields um, to Hotham or Falls or Buller um, yep. regularly and then we we flew back to Victoria whilst we've been living in WA but we've also been over to Queens uh, over to um, New Zealand to Queenstown um, and Yeah, have yet to try the States. I think the budget won't stretch to that whilst the uh, kids will want to come with us. (laughs) Mm. We'll wait till they're adults and they can pay for themselves before we make that trek.
0: My poor husband loves skiing and we've had our last two Japan trips cancelled. Once because a locum uh, fell through and then once because um, a family member was diagnosed with cancer and they were going to be going with us so we all decided to not go and then we were going to just go to threadbow this year in August and I shouldn't laugh but (laughs) yeah
1: that ain't gonna happen that's not gonna happen
0: (laughs) so um it's yeah three times a charm maybe next time but you know it is a first world problem with everything that's happening so um, exactly yeah we'll we'll make it happen when we can and um how did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing
1: Oh, look, that's, yeah, that's a really good question. I, so in London, I I didn't work with animals at all. I was, I lived in the middle of East London, so, you know, we live in a concrete jungle um, and I don't have anyone animal orientated in my family. But I started to horse ride uh, when I was about 10 and my mum used to drive me to the Hackney Marshes where there was an amazing riding school in the middle of London, just quite uh, quite unusual. I don't think it's there now because the Olympic, all the Olympics was built all around that area. And, mm. um, and I think a lot of that has disappeared. Uh, from there, I always, you know, we had pets, but I never really was into anything more than the fact that we had pets at home. But when I left London to move to Australia, I made a bit of a conscious decision that I wanted to work with animals. And I'd already done a number of different Jobs, including running a little small business myself in London, and nothing to do with animals. When I came to Melbourne, I got a part time job working in a pub uh, and I went and volunteered for the RSPCA in Victoria. And that was my foot in the door. So I, I pretty much worked as a volunteer in the hospital, um, you know, as a nursing assistant, if you want to call it something like that, for about 10 months. And in that time, in those days, the requirements to get into a nursing course uh, to get to, to start studying was a little bit uh, more relaxed than what it is now, um, certainly less competitive than what it is now. So I was able to enroll uh, through Boxfield College of TAFE to do my nursing qualification. And then um, a lovely lady uh, called Dr. Barbara Wellington that used to run the RSPCA for many, many years uh, was incredibly kind uh, and generous and offered me... Paid work, um, both at the RSPCA, and her husband owned a clinic um, in Melbourne. That was how I got my foot in the door. Um, But I, I, yeah, I did. I to try and to try and get a paid job straight away was was almost impossible. Um, And fortunately, I was able to work part time and earn enough to keep myself going, whilst I was able to prove, I think, to myself. Uh, that this was definitely a career path that I wanted and I wasn't going to be deterred uh, by anything. And it paid off for me.
0: It's a hard balancing act, isn't it? Keeping up some sort of paid income but volunteering. And was that the RSPCA in Burwood?
1: Yeah, it was. It was. And that was when the old facilities were there. So, and look, I'd love to give a shout out. Some of the nurses that I worked with then back in my very, very earliest days are still there now and are amazing uh, veterinary nurses that have just been in the industry for such a long time and are a wealth of knowledge.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. We definitely give a shout out. You you may have even worked with my brother there. He worked there for a decade, I think, probably from the uh, late 90s for 10 years. And oh. he, he worked um, just looking after the puppies he was just an animal attendant I guess and he was the right. puppy man his name's Tim so um, oh. and he eventually used that as a springboard to work as a veterinary nurse at the Lord Smith so yeah right
1: oh how funny is that small world it is a small world yes
0: and well most people who come to Australia from the UK want to run from the animals because <laughs> we have so many deadly petrifying ones but uh, you were compelled to move towards them which is lovely as well
1: yeah i don't think i really thought about that of course then i you know i went from being a veterinary nurse with domestic pets to a veterinary nurse uh, in the zoo industry for a lot of years so i certainly did move towards that direction yeah in in many ways (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) and where are you working now what's your role and what are you doing from day to day
1: yeah so i just needed a new change so i had been a veterinary nurse at melbourne zoo and then pursue for many 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 years um and i thoroughly enjoyed that but i kind of got to a point where i felt a new challenge was in order to take me through to my twilight years you know (laughs) uh, to those retirement years um and uh and you know look just on that point i think it's something that we should all think about you know they they statistics and research says that many people now will have you know or three careers in their life um, mm. and I did a lot of things before I became a veterinary nurse didn't do any of them very well and didn't all very short term um, and then became what I like to say a career veterinary nurse you know I've never looked at it as just a job it's been a career and it's it's been um, something that I've just Grasped and run with, um, but I've also felt like I've been able to reinvent myself and keep myself really motivated with these shifts that I've had every, you know, big chunk of years. So I think I'm into my third and final shift, which. Um, has brought me to working at the animal hospital at Murdoch University. So I'm now in the university setting. uh, And my role there is the coordinator for the community blood bank for cats and dogs. So I run a blood bank to ensure that there are full... A full range of blood products uh, for our transfusion services for the hospital. We don't provide blood products outside of the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. We don't sell blood products. We we have on occasion um, provided uh, blood products um, f- as goodwill in emergency situations. But mm-hmm. that's what I do now. So I've moved away from working with exotic animals, uh, and I'm and you know previously I wasn't very customer client focused um, and now I'm I'm more client focused and service based uh, and providing service to our hospital.
0: So how does blood bank work link you to client based is that just because you're anticipating a client need should a client bring their pet um, because you know the due to rodenticide toxicity or hit by car animal and you're trying to think how do we service you know how do we best service this client and how do we best cater to this patient and what are we offering is that what you mean as in being linked to clients more
1: uh look that is a part of it for sure but that's actually on the tail end so once a a cat or a dog has received a a blood transfusion or a product transfusion the recipients family are a focus for me to touch base with because what i want them to do is I want them to acknowledge the community donor. My mm. clients are my donor families. Um, okay. And I, I use it. the word donor families because many of the donors that are on my register, you know, are owned by families. You know, they're, they're, they are mums and dads and kids that own these amazing cats and dogs that come mm. in to donate purely on a community basis. Um, my job is to... Um, on one hand, I'm looking after the the transfusion services within the hospital. So I'm making sure that there is always product there. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that in a bit because <laughs> that's always a challenge. Mm. Um, and it's a little bit more of a challenge at the moment with all the COVID restrictions in mm. place. Um, but my other main focus is recruiting pets and looking after those donor families so that they would that, so that they are really happy to stay with us on the program because mm. it is an investment it's an investment in everybody's time um, mm-hmm. and it's an investment in those pets coming in. So for me I, I look at these families as my clients mm-hmm. um, and you know it's also wonderful for us if they then want to use our services in, in other ways.
0: That's fantastic and I like that you touched on the shifts in your career and what I call an exit plan. Um, because it is really important to think of an exit plan and it doesn't mean exiting the industry, it just means maybe exiting um, whatever day-to-day work you're doing now, thinking about, well, do I want to be doing this in 10 years and can I work that around having kids or can I work that around the fact that I will be a, a bit tired of doing this? So, it is important to start think of, thinking about what shifts you want to make and what exit plans that you'll have so that we can be moving into those next phases before we're jaded or sick of it or before it stops suiting us so I'm glad you touched on that
1: yeah look I I I think I couldn't imagine going to work and and being finding that that's a drag and you know I have to be honest with you that has almost never happened for me Um, I've always found a positive reason to go to work and, you know, occasionally you have the day where you, you know, m- think, oh, goodness, you know, particularly if something a little bit stressful might be happening. Mm-hmm. But generally, I, I, I have an intrinsic motivation to want to be at work. I can't, I can always find a plan. Um, I think what helps that is to, you know, to recognize that, you um, having, you know, having a plan that might last for a year or a few years or five years um, is really, really important to stay fresh. You know, I want to stay mm. fresh. I want mm-hmm. to stay current in the industry um, and I want to be able to recognize perhaps when I'm feeling like that's uh, that's less shiny, you know, than what it might have been a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to move to the next thing uh, with with the thing that I'm currently doing still in a really good space so that I can just build on that
0: that's right and i think sometimes it can be frustrating to think that you want to snap your fingers and say all right i'm ready to make that shift now but if you haven't started to sow the seeds or do that extra bit of study or do that extra bit of volunteering sometimes it's hard to make that ship jump so it is important to say if i want to be here in five years what do i need to be doing so yeah think about your exit strategies and your shifts and your career progression i guess everyone
1: yeah you also do want to think about retirement because
0: mm. <laughs> that's really oh, yeah. important
1: as well I mean you know we all want to retire in, in a happy place so I think uh, veterinary nursing is a very physically demanding job you know we know yep. how mentally demanding it is without a doubt and mm. um, and I, you know I think going back to those um, changes in some of the things that we do that also keeps me mentally stimulated and stable uh, along with you know having a, a, a significant other life away from work but the um the physical demanding component of our job uh, can't be ignored and look I'm not a Mm. big person I weigh 50 kilos and I'm five foot nothing Uh, so I I spent you know close to 20 years working with uh, uh, working very physically um, in a zoo environment and now working with big dogs uh, because most of our donors are are, mm. are, you know they're over twenty kilos mm. um, again it's it's physical um, but I am limiting how much lifting and uh, how much time I'm on my feet now uh, and that certainly does help you you know as you get into your as you get into your post fifty years
0: <laughs> yeah, even I found after I had kids like i'm not a, I'm not as strong in my core um, and I guess I'm unwilling to be <laughs> as you know blatantly risk-taking sometimes as well because I think well I can't afford to go sit in hospital and nobody can but you know once you've once you've got you know little people that need you to go home and feed them and put them to bed and that sort of thing you you sort of change what you're willing to do sometimes but um yeah I definitely I definitely think it's important to to stop the physical role before you throw your back out or whatever it is that's going to happen so yeah, uh, And there great. are plenty of, plenty of you know, different areas to progress into. And with what the work that you're doing now, what's your favourite part of your job?
1: Oh, my goodness. That's tricky. Cat, you got me on a tricky one. Um, what is the most <laughs> favourite part of my job? Actually, I do have a most favourite part of my job. Uh, there is this really weird favourite part of my job that is um, – it's just kind of odd and creepy. But I'll tell you what it is. And then I'll tell you about, you know, other favourite parts. One well, of the favourite, <laughs> most favourite parts of my job is when we – collect blood from a cat or a dog, the moment that blood trickles down into a blood bag and starts to fill up is a really, really favourite part of my day. Um, yeah. there's, there's, it's almost like uh, if you've watched the show Dexter, it's a little bit creepy like Dexter, right? So I'll just put that into perspective. Um, yeah. uh, that being said, other um, really uh, – I guess the, the most favourite part of my job is to be able to always – Provide for the services of the hospital's needs. So we we have a, a blood bank. So I can open our fridge and I can provide blood products to clinicians at the, mm-hmm. as they ask for them. Sometimes it's a little more complicated than that. Sometimes they they might want to have uh, platelets uh, available to. Uh, a dog that needs platelets and these things come with a degree of urgency so uh, for me i get a lot of joy out of being able to uh, say yes i can do that for you and uh, i will source a donor that will come in straight away with a family member and you know within two hours we can provide a product that's going to be life-saving for uh, a patient that's in our hospital in critical care. That gives me a lot of satisfaction. Mm. Uh, The other side of the job that I absolutely enjoy is recruiting new pets onto the program. Mm -hmm. I really like meeting people. I am don't find it a struggle to talk to most people so it's always really enjoyable you know when we put a recruitment drive out and we do a shout out to get new donor families in it's always really exciting to 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 be on the cusp of meeting some new people some new pets uh, Mm -hmm. to see how they're going to fit into uh into our donor program and how they're going to fit into my life because a lot of these people have now become people that I know quite well through Mm. this program you know I know a little bit about their lives because when our dogs in particular donate their owners stay with them in the room whilst they donate so you know we get an opportunity to chat and get to know each other a little bit and uh, and that's been a really a really enjoyable part of my work.
0: I think that um, that's something, we all talk about how much we love, uh, you know, pets and animals and those bonds. But I remember when we first opened ReadyVet, my husband had just finished working at a practice up here that he'd been at maybe for three years. So he was just at the point that he had started developing really close bonds with the clients. And it was a shame for him to sort of start again, because we were in a a different town, you know, half an hour away. And so he said to me when we first opened, like, oh, what's going to be really great is in a couple of years, we're going to have these bonds with our clients and we're going to have all these people in our lives because we just moved up here from, from Brisbane, so we didn't really know anyone and sure enough you know a a year two years later at christmas they're bringing you christmas presents and and when we had our first son oh my gosh the presents just kept coming in and in and in for weeks on end people were you know knitting us blankets and buying us you know clothes and sending cards so i think that um that's something that we that we don't always talk about is the bonds with the humans
1: Oh absolutely I agree um yeah and you know for the families that I work with um that they their community spirit is just amazing you know that, that there is nothing um to make them do what they do uh you know we don't spruik incentives we always reward our donors but it isn't something that is discussed uh, as a way to get people to come onto the program you know they join the program because they just have uh, this community spirit where they want to help you know and some of them are from a background where their their pets have received transfusions their pets in the past because those those cats and dogs can't be donors once they've received Mm. a transfusion themselves obviously Mm -hmm. but they've had some they might have had some Uh, exposure to uh, either their own previous pets or their friends or family's pets but the Mm. fact that they are just willing to come in for the sake of helping others uh, is just so heartwarming for me and to get to know these people and to get to know their their superhero pets is just Mm. quite incredible
0: and when we're talking about blood donor selection obviously we're looking at uh, a pool that would just get further and further narrowed once you're looking at the age range the weight range you'd be blood typing taking a history um, that sort of thing so is it difficult finding suitable suitable pets?
1: Uh, to it, it's it, it takes a while to find the right donors um, so cats we do sedate for a blood donation. Um, most cats are just not likely to stay still long enough for us to have them donate the volume of blood that they need to donate for that to be a useful volume to work with. Um, so our cats, uh, well, we probably have a little bit more flexibility with our cats. In saying that, cat. you know, I'm a fear-free qualified veterinary nurse and that is an amazing course to go through and I base my behavioural assessment and my recruitment intentions on practising the most fear-free behaviours that I can at my end uh, and that our dogs and cats that present to us can demonstrate for us too. Uh, So, I'm not interested in having donors on the program that show any degree of anxiety or stress at being gently handled. Uh, So... My behavioural temperament assessments are even more important than the specifications that, that they need to meet. You know, clearly uh, they need to be over a certain weight range and they need to be within an age range and they need to be vaccinated and they need to be on regular preventive um, health treatment like heartworm and flea treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what comes in above all of that is their calm and uh, gentle temperament. Um, we ideally aim to not sedate our dogs when they donate. Mm. Uh, so I would say to you about 90% of our dogs on our register are not sedated. They're with their owner. They are lying down looking in their owner's eyes uh, whilst their owner chats away to them and mm. the donation proceeds as normally. Uh, that's That sort of animal, human-animal bond is really critical in the process of recruiting. And I've become better and better at that over the the years that I've been doing this now to recognise how that animal interacts with their owner quite soon after they come in to visit me for their very first, what we call a meet and greet. Um, and I have... Uh, evolved into being able to tell an owner in a, in a really nice way if i feel like their pet might not be the most suited and that goes for cats as well because if i can't mm. if i can't get a simple blood sample from a cat just on regular restraint uh, to screen them for their for their health to become a donor, mm. then it, then I feel like they're not actually going to be uh, comfortable with the degree of restraint to get to the point of donating in the first place.
0: That's a good point. We don't care what blood type you are if this is stressing you out so much because we're not going to repeat this just just for the sake of um, donations. Where did you who did you do your fear free accreditation through?
1: Well, that's uh, that was with the the actual Fear Free company. So our university uh, put every single staff member through that qualification about eighteen months ago, and um, uh, it's an it's an online qualification. I think it takes about eighteen hours, mm-hmm. and I I just think it's a fantastic qualification and to have and um, and I go back and refer to my notes frequently because I'm not a behavioural. Specialist. I've done mm-hmm. a bit of behavioural training with animals that I've worked with uh, in the zoo industry. Um, mm-hmm. So I, 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 you know, I'm very I include into positive reinforcement and mm. uh, all of those positive sides of behaviour. And you know, obviously, being pet owners ourselves, we we uh, practice those things at home with our own pets. Um, but that. Uh, that has led me, it's, it's, it's put me in a really good position uh, to work with these cats and dogs under this program. Because when I shifted <clears throat> to Murdoch University, I hadn't worked with cats and dogs for you know close to 20 years. Yeah. So the hands-off, less stress approach that you use with wildlife and exotics Uh, Was what I had been practicing for a really long time. So this was a massive shift for me. And I had to really be very, very careful about learning those behaviors. Um, Mm -hmm. And the fear-free qualification, uh, the fear-free course and the content of that course helped me uh, significantly with that.
0: Well, I'll put a link to that course in the show notes and I know that a previous guest, Serena Dean, also does fear-free accreditation, so I'll put a link to hers again just for anybody who's interested and I know when we opened... Um, ready bet the first time we needed or our dog used to come to work with us every day and the first time we needed a donor obviously we we got him and we sedated him and afterwards he was just smashed for hours um, and the next time we went to do it my husband said i don't think we need to sedate him and from then on for a period of about four years he was our donor dog until he just got a bit too old for it um, but but basically we just used to give him a bowl of milk afterwards and it got to the point that as soon as we were put him up on the treatment table and uh, and you know get the clippers onto his jugular, he would start salivating, thinking about the milk.
1: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs>
0: he had like a Pavlovian response to to having his jugular shaved or yeah. his neck shaved. And then he would just lie down and you know as soon as we would go to, to to stick the needle in, he'd take a big breath and blow out his nostrils really slowly and stay really still because he was just like come on just stay still and get it right you're gonna get the sweet sweet milk and you know then we'd be like putting pressure um you know afterwards just going just wait just wait a second mate just hang on a second we you know we, we can't get you all bruised and then we'd let him off and he'd run and have his milk so that was like part of setting up it would be like right have we got the have we got the blood bag have we got this have we got the clippers have we got the milk somebody get the milk oh my god
1: yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, they've all got their thing that they that they like and enjoy, and um, yeah, just to see see these guys just behave like they're just rock stars. You know, they they totally. lay down on the table, and uh, mum or daddy's at the head end, and you know we're right there um, at the head end, and the. The, that big sigh that you mentioned yeah we mm. we got a couple of retrievers on our um, donor uh, program and they're just the most beautiful trusting dogs you know the, the bond yeah. that they have with their owners and looking into their owners, owners eyes through this whole procedure and the you know the pride that an owner um has in their 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 dog and and their cat when they come and pick up their cat and um you know the first time any cat donates for me I like to show the owner the little bag of cat cells um I like to actually say to them this is the end product this is what your guy has just produced for us and that's going to save a cat's life and that's uh you know that's that that your pet is an absolute rock star and to see um, our owners you know go home with their pets you know they've, their pets have got their blood donor bandana on and they're just so proud and they get popped mm. up on our Facebook page. Mm. Um, I've always got something to say about each of their pets. Um, I've got one um, one of our <coughs> retrievers uh, on our program. We've only got a couple of them but both of them actually just really resonate with me about their loyalty to their owner so one of them is uh, a beautiful dog called Breva and um, she's owned by an Italian family and uh, her mum the first time she came in with her mum to donate her mum spoke to her in italian through the whole donation which oh. basically made it very hard for me to concentrate on anything else because it just sounded so beautiful you yeah. know like i was i think i almost fell in love with uh, breva's mum at that point because she was just <laughs> whispering to her in this italian it was so gorgeous anyway we finished yeah. the donation and everything went just beautifully breva was a rock star this was her first ever donation she got off the table and she was having a bowl of food and i said to uh, said to bibi what what did you what do you say to her and she said, oh, Michelle, I tell her that I'm going to smack her and I'm going to be – she's going to be very – she cannot be a very naughty dog. She has to be a very good dog. And I, we just cracked out laughing because clearly she was not saying those things. <laughs> but I, I think the look, the shocked look on my face to begin with, that I was like, oh, my God, you told her you're totally going to smack her and you're going to hit her if she moves. And she said, no, no, I tell her what she's lovely and, and, and how gorgeous she is. And I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. She could have been saying all those mean and nasty things. I would never know, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's all about the tone, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And she was just, you know, just flowing this beautiful Italian, um, you know, words to her. And this just like yeah. went on for the 10 minutes that it took us to get through the donation. Um, yeah. And I was quite mesmerised by this. And just for her to just quick as a quick as a flash tell me that she was telling her she would smack her if she moved. <laughs> you know, which of course she wasn't wasn't saying any of those things. But my face just dropped.
0: <laughs> it is moving, isn't it? Just watching that relationship of trust where you can see the, the fear but the trust and, you know, the and we're going, okay, I'll be all right because mum says. And Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. Now you've got um, three kids, so I assume your morning routine is pretty hectic. What happens when you wake up in the morning? How are you setting yourself up for a day at the uni?
1: Uh, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm a morning person, so that's really good. And uh, I do rise early in the morning no matter what. And so for me... The first thing that happens in my day is I go off to the gym and exercise. That is my, that's me. That's my me time. Um, I've got a great uh, bunch of friends that I've met um, at the gym that we all get together and we're very uh, I- encouraging of each other to get there for a 6 a.m. and uh, get through uh, an hour of some decent exercise. That sets me up really well for the day. So by the time I come home, uh, the kids are ready to be woken up and, and start their day. And I'm, of course, bouncing off the walls by then because I've had a cup of coffee and I've uh, had my endorphin release and I'm mm. feeling, feeling pretty good about the day. Uh, so, yeah, then second, obviously, get these guys uh, sorted out. My kids are pretty independent, so they can get themselves ready for school and uh, then I get myself in a frame of mind to get into work. By then I've usually started to think about what the day ahead of me is going to bring. I've already sort of started to plan what's going on and uh, get in the car and uh, get off to work. uh, And You know, in the car, I'm on the way and I'm thinking about what's going to happen, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Of course, you know what does happen. I get to work, and uh, apart from some, you know, clear, structured things that have got to happen, like donors are coming in at a set time and these things got to happen, what may be happening is that I get uh, called down to the ICU floor because, you know, the proverbial has hit the fan and Mm -hmm. we have got transfusions going all over the place. And um, so, not only do I run the blood bank but I'm I where I can I like to get down onto the floor and actually um, be a part of transfusions you know I like to see what's going on I like to uh, be supportive of the staff and especially if, we, if we've got some of our newer nurses on the floor to work mm. with them through transfusions course we're a teaching hospital so we have always got students uh, and to work with them through transfusion processes is really important. It's a really important part of my day. I enjoy teaching Uh, so I might have a plan in mind about how the day is going to go um, and then I might get into work and it's going to actually look a little bit different for a part of it because uh, we get thrown some curveballs Excellent. And yeah,
0: you're right, um, administering any kind of blood product is um, something that nurses really need to to be learning, you know, how to prep the product and then how to prep the patient, administer the product. What are we looking out for in terms of a potential reaction? So it is a lot to get used to, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, you know, and uh, transfusion services now are a very regular part of um part of a a, a patient's uh, 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 care in hospital so you know it's not something that is not done regularly Um, Mm. and these products are available to us all the time I mean we we are really fortunate in our hospital in that we you know we do have a built-in bank so we have um, we you know our our clinicians can request all products you know we can we can provide everything that they need but our nurses are the ones that are on the front line of monitoring those patients. Mm. You know, so it's all well and good to hang up a bag of plasma or or, or pack cells or stored whole blood, whatever it's going to be. Um, but it is it is without a doubt up to our veterinary nurses to be confident in setting up that animal to monitor them appropriately through that transfusion mm. and to be recognising when there are changes that might lead to uh, a, you know a, a reaction that could be either a mild reaction or a significant reaction, and mm-hmm. uh, the nurses in our ICU are very very well trained for these uh, for for these sorts of things, and the clinicians just rely on them one hundred percent you know they, 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 they will the nurses will be training the students uh, on what mm-hmm. to look for and how to set up and you know the best transfusions go the, go the well when the animal is monitored appropriately. Um, Mm. We deal with a lot of really complicated uh, uh, IMHA cases, so cats and dogs, but mostly dogs that have um, really, really unhappy uh, auto-agglutinating systems, they're they're already behind the eight ball when they start transfusions. They might not be cross-matching well to the donors that we have. Um, We might have to provide a transfusion in a situation where we're quite aware that it's not the most compatible blood, uh, but mm-hmm. it's it's the best that we can offer to that to that uh, animal, uh, and they need to have a transfusion. So our monitoring skills have to be very very heightened in those situations.
0: That's right, and I mean in terms of reactions, we can see anything from mild facial swelling um, to, you know, really acute um, hemolytic crises. So, I mean, we're, we're monitoring for a whole range of, of reactions and being able to then pivot or, or react accordingly. So it is quite complex, the nursing of these patients.
1: Yeah, I agree, absolutely
0: and um, I'm just I'm just having a, a a look back through some of my notes on different blood products because it's really uh, some GP practices don't even do any once it's anything to do with blood um, or transfusions they will refer to a specialist center and that's GPs you know in in city settings and whatnot and then you've got GP practices like mine that are, that are in rural areas and we're probably mainly dealing with fresh whole blood stored whole blood and and plasma maybe maybe that maybe that's it. So um, I can only imagine what it must be like to have all the candies in the candy store, so to speak, of being able to, to, to just grab the most appropriate product and really make sure that we're meeting um, the recipient's needs. So you guys are really lucky and you're making that all in house, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I, I do. And, you know, that's another really exciting part of my job. I've, I mean, I've always been a bit of a lab nerd. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed lab work um, in exotic practice because we did a lot of avian and reptilian haematology. Uh, so I, I had a foundation of lab skills that I was able to take with me to this new job. But my supervisor at uh, Murdoch University, she had uh, quite an extensive background in uh, managing blood bank. Uh, blood banking at um, Tufts in the United States. So I've been very lucky to work under under her, um, Dr. Claire Sharp, and, and that she's been a wealth of knowledge for me. Um, so to be able to learn, you know, I walked in, you know, we didn't do blood transfusions at, at uh, in the zoo industry. They're certainly happening a lot more now, which I'm absolutely loving um, and have participated a little bit in. Um, but uh, but in my time there we didn't. So this was really new skills for me, um, you know. And we talk about that keep it fresh, you know. Move, move, you know, career orientated, and move with, uh, m- move when you're ready to move and look at new things. And this was one of those uh, opportunities for me where I I once I started this job and I realised how many components of this job there were for me to just learn new things. It just made me so excited. So, learning how to make a range of products has been very, very cool. You know, to be able to um, make products like platelets and cryoprecipitate, uh, are, are it's exciting to be able to offer those. One of the things that I did, um, because I sort of thought, okay, in a small blood banking environment, you know, we're not the Red Cross. You know, the Red Cross makes – all their products are made uh, through automated machines. So it's, there's very, very specific and there's very detailed processes involved. And we have to make things by hand. So I, I made a connection with one of the processing managers at the Red Cross here in Perth. And he has just been amazing and allowed me to go out to the Red Cross and – uh, spend some time with them watching how they process their bloods. One of the things that I wanted to look at was improving the uh, how we make our platelets and making sure that we are making platelets to the best of our ability. And one of the things they do is they make platelets on mass production, um, and but what he recognised for me pretty quickly was we are quite unique in that you know I might m- we might need to make one bag of platelets out of one bag of fresh whole blood that's just been collected, so he put me onto their one of their technicians who runs their international services. So when the Red Cross go overseas to deal with um, emergency situations, for example, uh, there might be a dengue outbreak um, in in a, a, a country where they don't have all of those processes in place, they will go straight back to single-handedly making their, their product. So I was able to sit down and pick the brains of this technician who does the same thing that I would need to do with our one bag of dog blood but does it over and over again with a single bag of human blood that's been collected to make the end product perfect all by hand uh, using the same sorts of uh, same equipment that we have Um, so to be able to source those uh, those um, opportunities and to to get those networks up and running, and then to be able to throw questions out you know I did this, and it didn 't go well, and i 'm wondering you know if I, how I could tweak this that 's just been such a, a, an exciting part of this job for me
0: yeah our human medicine counterparts can be a wealth of knowledge and and potentially resources too can't they like my husband matt's brother is a cardiothoracic surgeon and his his wife so my my husband's sister-in-law my sister-in-law is a cardiologist so he's always ringing both of them um with questions or you know he'll he'll send um things through to her and say what do you think about this and she'll assess it and you know they love it they love being contacted about um anything to do with with animals and i think it's a a real treat for them to have a a, some you know, different to to talk about.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, my my colleague that I was just talking about, Danny, he he then has since come and spent a day with us, you know, and, and he said to me, you just do everything from like the moment you meet a potential donor to put in the product you know in the bank or Mm. hanging it hanging a bag up and starting a transfusion you know he said we we process all of our bloods that's our job you know we have this one component to do and you do everything and and he's a great animal lover and has actually just Mm. been doing some animal studies himself um you know and we were it's just such a lovely relationship that we have um he's he's in awe of what we do and i am able to pick his brains about all that high-end technology that they have at their fingertips
0: well, hasn't he just tapped into one of the most significant things about veterinary medicine as a whole? We do the beginning to end. So you know, a patient walks in, and we will um, be doing the the first initial triaging, or we will be you know the vet will be taking the history or working the case up. He might be doing the radiographs. Um, he will be prescribing the medication, he or she, and we will be dispensing the medication. You know, with a pharmacist, with a pathologist. Um, you know, we're we're doing everything. So that's just uh, you know, and even if if, it, if the patient needs to go to surgery or needs chemotherapy, you know, we we just provide nearly every step of the way. Well, in some settings, it is sort of niching down. But I do love that about veterinary science. And while we're talking about, um, you know, various things that he has, equipment that you're in awe of, um, what is a purchase made by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet nurse life?
1: Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. Um... Can I choose? Can I choose something that is a little is away from what I currently do? If that's yes, okay, that's um, fine. because um, you know <laughs> we've got some really cool things. Uh, don't don't I, I won't I won't uh, deny that uh, in my current role. Uh, uh, we bought a. Actually, let, can I do two? I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> so right now, probably one of the most expe- exciting purchases was a tube welder. So a t- mm. <laughs> a tube welder uh, allows us to uh, to in a sterile way uh, weld bits of. Uh, tubing together that allow us to move blood from one system to another mm. so an example of that would be that we have say a five kilogram little white fluffy dog in the hospital that uh, that is uh, has ongoing IMHA. So that's that's a problem for that dog. And we have one whole bag of blood that that dog is compatible to out of all of the bags of blood in the fridge. And that one whole bag of blood, once you spike it, has a life of 24 hours. And this little five kilo dog might need about 100 mils of that 400 mils of blood that's then going to go to waste. Mm. The tube welder allows me to move Uh, as much of that blood over into other sterile bags. So Mm. I can create three small sterile bags of that same blood product for that dog, that that dog could have transfusions from the same donor over an extended period of time should it need them. And if it doesn't need them, then somebody else can use that blood. That is a very, very exciting piece of equipment. And when we- It's
0: all aseptic and you're not wasting anything. exactly. Mm, And it just
1: opens up opportunities for us. It It allows us to manage our bank so much better. It allows me to have one donor be a, a rock star for three potential life-saving transfusions. If oh, That's actually awesome. it's four because they would also have some plasma sitting there in our freezer waiting to be used. Mm. Um, so our tube welder has uh, has been a really really exciting piece of equipment for me. Um, if I can change the the subject, or oh, well, not the subject, but if I can change the angle of that a little bit, uh, about nine years ago, we took a year out of our life and we went and lived in a remote part of Vietnam for a year, my husband and I, and two of our children, because one was three and a half and one was six months old at the time, Wow! Uh, and we took them to live in Vietnam uh, to work on a bear rescue sanctuary uh, for Free the Bears, which are a Perth-based, not-for-profit bear rescue uh, organisation. They're amazing people. uh, Mary Hutton uh, is just the most incredible 80 plus year old lady that you could ever meet, and uh, I met Mary through my work at Perth Zoo. Uh, we had uh, supported Free the Bears in a number of ways, uh, providing them with clinical support and uh, and husbandry advice over the years. And so we, I was on maternity leave, and we took uh, we and we also had long service leave, both my husband and I. And at the time, he was the supervisor for the exotic Uh, uh, animals at the zoo, so looking after all the big cats and the bears and the hoofstock. So we went over to Vietnam for a year and did a year of volunteer service with Free the Bears. So we set up in a sanctuary, a brand new sanctuary that they were building. And my job was to... Uh, help facilitate a veterinary hospital, set up a veterinary hospital. And I applied for an Endeavour Award, um, which I was really um, lucky and was granted. So I was given uh, $10,000 and that was to be used to A, live, to just be able to like feed ourselves and live um, and to buy equipment. So I was given the flexibility to spend that money however way I wanted to. And we were fortunate enough that Free the Bears very much took care of our living arrangements. Uh, we had a little a little house on this uh, big uh, bear sanctuary, which was also a mango plantation in the middle of nowhere, literally, uh, overlooking the Gulf of Thailand. And then so I was able to spend a lot of that money on veterinary equipment. So I used that money and we purchased in consultation with what was needed for the organization Uh, an anesthetic machine and darting equipment and a range of veterinary equipment and you know if I'm honest probably the most fulfilling time I've ever bought equipment that's been quite life-changing in the veterinary industry was to be able to uh, set up a veterinary room in this sanctuary where we then went on to do some of the first world first um, keyhole surgeries to remove gallbladders from bears.
0: Oh wow that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it was it was a very, very cool time, I have to say. A little bit challenging with two little tiny children there.
0: <laughs> well, as someone with a nearly three-year-old and a seven-month-old, I am just like, I'm even like reluctant when I look at where could we go for a holiday and you think, oh, no, we need somewhere if the kids need to go to hospital or whatever. So I think that that's really brave of you and... I, I used to travel every year until I had kids and, and I think that it's a really good thing to encourage people to do just to, to pack up and go somewhere for a year and you've actually inspired me on that because there are there are so many reasons to say, oh, we can't do that and that might be where are we going to put all our stuff or what are we going to do about our house or what are we going to do about our lease or our mortgage or our what about our kids and you um, have shown me that actually well you can just get around that like you can you can whatever that problem is you can get through it so i would love to to take our kids to live somewhere for a year at some point in time and yeah it must be really rewarding to set up um this center that is um you know no doubt still bringing benefit to the area
1: yeah it it, it was yeah it was a, a fantastic experience and we'd like to go again and do something again at some point you know we 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 Talk about that regularly, and we—it's just a matter of picking another time that's right. You know, once you start getting kids into high school, uh, it's a little bit trickier. Um, mm. But um, you know, and it might be that it's just something that we do once the kids are old enough to be independent, and we'll. Uh, probably most likely spend a part of our year each year at you know, some point later on uh, doing these things and, um, and n- never not ruling them out of our lives because it's just too rewarding to do that. And you, know, you, you touched on that, uh, how do you get around the, the logistics of doing this? And you're quite right. It, it, it was quite overwhelming to pack mm-hmm. everything up and go. But at the end of the day, you know, that you just chip away at things. You know, until mm. you kind of ticked all the boxes and you go, oh, okay, that's the last box packed and that's the last yep. logistical thing. And then we just got on a plane. <laughs> and yeah, then we got just... out at the other end and we mm. had just our cases and mm. nothing. Um, and before we left Ho Chi Minh to drive down to um, to our village, which was about only 300 kilometres south of uh, of Ho Chi Minh City, but uh, a, 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 like a 10-hour drive because the roads are not like roads here. Mm. Um We had to buy a household full of gear to take down there because the house was empty apart from beds. So we had to think whilst we're in Ho Chi Minh to go shopping, Um, you know, hire a vehicle, go shopping, get some stuff that that we took down there. Do you know what's the most amazing thing, Kat, is I think that that period of time made me realise how much you can live without quite easily. Yeah. And, you know, we came back home and we came back – when we came home, uh, I had to come home a little bit earlier than Truman. So I came home and brought the kids home. Then I went back uh, by myself to finish off. I wanted to be there for the all the bare surgeries because we just worked so hard to get to that point. Um, and we had a specialist coming in, a specialist um, keyhole um, uh, endoscopy surgeon uh, coming in from Scotland, and I wanted to be there for that. So I left the kids at home for a couple of weeks while I went back for the surgeries, and then we both came back together. When we came back, uh, we sort of had to move around a bit until our house was vacant again and uh, moved back into our house and, yeah, kind of realised how much we had lived without and done really well with just adapting. Things like not having any water because we were up on a mountain and only relied on uh, water being trucked in, you know, so we would be very diligent about the amount of water that we used for everything um, and not having the normal foods that you have, you know, and just being able Mm. to to get by. I think just, uh, you know, recognising that our material things that we have around us sometimes we just don't need all those things
0: that's so true Uh, whenever I would travel because my first degree was in international studies and I and so I always went somewhere and often volunteering and you know just me and my backpack for you know weeks or months on end and whenever I would get home I would be horrified by the sheer volume of things that I had you know I would have just looked at my backpack every day for weeks or months and I would just be like when did I get all this stuff and what do I even do with it? You know, your things look foreign to you when you get back yeah. <laughs> and it takes a while to get over the guilt of it all sometimes too, particularly if you've been in Southeast Asia or somewhere where you realise, you know, how little you actually need. So I think that just that that realisation alone is a good reason to, to pick up pick up sticks and, and go do something like
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I recommend it to everybody.
0: Me too. Now, just before we head to a quick break, is there a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? And and um, was this in a personal or professional capacity? Uh,
1: I think professionally, you know, if I go back to that time in Vietnam, uh, one of the things that we had there, which wasn't aware until we got there, was a lack of a veterinarian. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I knew we forgot something. Yeah,
1: that was a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) So I arrived and one of the vets that Free the Bears employed that was working on one of their Cambodian sanctuaries uh, came over to help, well, he came over to desex all of the dogs that were on the sanctuary because there were a number of dogs on the sanctuary and the sanctuary manager wanted to get them all de which is great. It's exactly what needed to happen so that we could then have these dogs stay on the sanctuary as sanctuary dogs, guard dogs, um, pets, uh, but not be reproducing. So there were five dogs, uh, uh, one female and three males and... Um, the clinician come out, came over the border, and I, I we'd been there two days, and he said, "Okay, we're going to desex these dogs." So that was fine. We went ahead and did them. It was a little bit, um, it was in the office on the on the uh, office um, desk <laughs> uh, with very very little support stuff around us, but we got there. Because uh, then he went back over the border and uh, and. Left, left me to these uh, recovering dogs, and the dogs. You can't, you know, you can't. There was no way to contain them, uh, so it became aware pretty quickly that they all pulled their sutures out, including the female. Oh no! Uh, so we did have a Vietnamese vet on site that had just graduated and the qualification in Southeast Asia is a little bit different um, to what we would be used to from a newly qualified vet. So I didn't quite know what the expectations were from this lovely fella anyway i you know through a fair bit of uh, sign language and gesticulating and a translator to some extent we worked out that we needed to re these dogs and suture them back up mm. uh, so we got the first one sedated and i popped this dog on the table and got it all ready for uh, kung to start suturing and he picked up a broom and started sweeping the floor uh, so I was like to him, oh, Kung, you know, come over here, You go, we'll do this and a bit of, you know, going through the physical motions of saying to him, you've got to stitch this this uh, dog up. And then he looks at me and he shakes his hands. He says, no, can't do, can't do. <laughs> uh, so, so he and I are having this kind of Mexican standoff. Um, and our translator finally said to me, no, he doesn't know how to do that. Um, So I said, okay, all right. So I basically just uh, uh, put some sterile gloves on and uh, sedated and sutured up all the dogs. Um, And after I'd done it, well, sorry, I shouldn't say all dogs, after I did two, he, he said, oh, can do, can do. So oh. then he just actually <laughs> took it on and, and did the, the rest, which was fantastic because I think it was a real confidence booster for him. And mm. it was a really scary moment for me. But, um, but yeah, it was, we got there. And then I think at that point, after that point, I realised that we just needed to have a little bit more conversation and communication yeah. before we worked out what he was able to do and what he couldn't do before we got into a sticky spot.
0: Yeah, and some people who are just working in, in bed, practices with lots of vets will never experience that. But I know nurses who are working in, in regional um, general practice settings will, they will experience that. There will be times when the vet's gone out to see a down cow because they're a, you know, there are a mixed practice. They might be 50, 50, largey smally or whatever. And the vet will be out seeing a down cow and a snake bite dog will come in and you have to just call the vet and say, this is what's happened, come back as soon as you can, but you just have to get started. Yeah. Um, and so it can really, it can really be petrifying but it really can make you step up and go, no, all right, let's just start with the basics. We need to do this. We need to do that. And so sometimes being thrown in that deep end, um, you know, can be can be a real confidence boost, be it for you or the vet's confidence yeah, boost as well uh, in that yeah. situation.
1: And I think it was, it was a bit of a double barrel for both of us, but I, I certainly was very mindful when we were doing any major bear procedures uh, to be really careful about what he was comfortable doing before we – you know, went ahead and yeah. uh, anesthetized a, a bear and yes. put a bear on the table. Because that's a, t- a whole let's different ball that. game. Yeah. Yes, let's have that
0: chat first. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, we'll we'll come back shortly. Are you happy if we have a quick break?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Support
0: for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilkeen. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilkeen contains alpha casozepine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkeen probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Hey, Kat Robinson here. You know me from Radio Vet Nurse, but I'm also the co-founder, co-owner, and general manager of ReadyVet. ReadyVet is a veterinary surgery in far north Queensland. My husband's a vet, and we really, really, really appreciate our vet nurses. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm kind of passionate about nursing too. So when I told Matt I wanted to start Radio Vet Nurse to celebrate vet nurses and tell our story, we agreed that ReadyVet would make this financially possible. So thanks, ReadyVet. That's all. Carry on. welcome back michelle what advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing
1: ah oh, well because you know it's really different now um i qualified a long time ago in 91 i think it was uh and i i i feel like the to even just to get into the industry now is so much more competitive and mm. and it's harder um I'd love to see more male figures in the industry. I think mm. that that would be really uh, rewarding to have a balance in in any practice of male and female nurses. Uh, I know that in at our hospital we have a couple of male nurses, and it's awesome having them around. Uh, they just yeah bring a, a different a different strength and a different approach to our team culture, which is really nice. Um, but I think that probably one of the standout things for me advice-wise would be to uh, approach it as a career uh, and Mm. to think that this, you know, to say this is the career that I'm choosing so I will be a career nurse and what that means is whether I work in a one-man practice or whether I work in a whether I'm a a manager in a a, a practice, you know, or or a company that owns five practices and I manage 50 nurses, I will always approach this as my career and so my my startup into into this career you know is going to be a, a serious startup and I want to think about all of the uh, perhaps these, these plans, what's my first five-year plan? It's, it's to consolidate my knowledge, you know, because we're all aware that when you graduate with a veterinary nursing qualification, there is still a wealth of knowledge out there and, and practical skills that you've just got to get a handle on. And I, I can't honestly tell you that I felt comfortable for at least the first five years. Mm. And I think it was uh, five years in before I, I felt like I really knew what I was doing and that I was a commodity to a workplace and I think that every veterinary nurse uh, you know as you're going through as a student uh, you know as you're doing your workplace pracs you have that confidence and, and, and treat this as your career and that it, it, it's not a stepping stone to something else.
0: That's right. And also we don't just snap our fingers and become, you know, this occupation. It is a career and careers, you know, they, they take a, a long time to get started. And as you say, they've got stages and phases. I think you don't just finish your qualification and go, boom, you know, I am now this thing, you know, no, it's it's a career and a career is a long journey.
1: Yeah, and and you know, there's there's so much more. Uh, there's many opportunities to continue to study uh, through that career, and you know that that career as a veterinary nurse will could take a number of paths. Um, but at the end of the day, our foundations and what we what we learnt in the very beginning and that passion, which is why we we have gone into that in the first place, uh, are still right there, and that's what I go back and draw on. I take a lot... I get a lot of pleasure out of doing all of the... all those... All those fundamental things you know i've I've been um, in a management role for an extended number of years managed a small team of nurses I've been uh, a part of the team and uh, not been in the management position um, I've been sitting on the to the side doing something you know slightly different but still very much in the veterinary nursing industry and at every step of that way of every step of those uh, th- those that that way those opportunities that I've had I've just always gone back to that that uh that fundamental uh pleasure um in being able to work with animals in, in, you know in one way or another
0: that's right and and speaking of drawing on those foundations and what we learned during that time what advice would you give to a student vet nurse struggling with their studies
1: oh I started, I struggled with my studies <laughs> oh my goodness look I'm just I'm remembering back to studying and because you know the computers were not as popular you know didn't have um, easy access to. I remember lying in my lounge room with my textbooks and my colouring in pencils and mm-hmm. writing an assignment and using a different colour for every word. Oh, my God, I'm just wondering now what that lecturer would have thought about <laughs> that at the time. It's was crazy. And drawing pictures, you know, drawing pictures of like parasites and cells to go along with my assignments. Wow. Because um, when I went through, but during that time, uh, which was 90 to 90 91 to 93 I think it was you know we were we were uh our, my studies were one year full-time predominantly in the classroom we were not um in those days the the training package was not what it is now uh, so we were not uh, uh in workplaces uh we were very much in a class getting all of our underpinning knowledge which was fantastic mm. um but certainly didn't didn't put me in a good position to be then let loose out in practice, you know, and Mm. that's, you know, why I think, you know, I feel very much that it took a number of years to feel confident. Um, But I think what I would say to a student that is struggling is to... uh, if you can find a mentor that has you know an experienced veterinary nurse that has gone through the, those studies uh, that has been there but that can actually provide you with support because yeah sometimes you are going to just need to sit down and chat to somebody about about this and picking up books and getting on the internet is uh, it's fantastic and we can do all of those things but I think that uh, being able to actually just talk through uh, some study concerns and, and, you know, just perhaps get some validation that, you know, you're on the right track and what you're doing is right and uh, and getting some of those industry tips that aren't going to come out of some of that more formal study uh, is how I wish I had have approached that at the time and I didn't, um, but I certainly have offered my services to students, uh, you know, it, 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 since I've uh, been... It, you know, more in that experienced nurse capacity.
0: And I think a lot of experienced nurses are more than happy, as you as you are, to to say yes, of course, I'll be that person, um, if you need to talk something through, or if you've got any questions about how what you're learning actually, you know, in re- in reality happens and what we do, or if you want to ha- rehash over something you have done in practice and how that related to what you've learned. So, um, it, I think a lot of practices will actually have to designate. I know that when we have students doing the cert four, we have to have a mentor listed. Um, but that that really we make sure that we've got a different mentor if we've got a number of students they all have a different mentor so we don't just have one vet or one vet nurse getting swamped so that is your person find out who that that is and um and even if you don't gel with that person so much you can ask somebody else informally to be your mentor as well
1: yeah exactly and uh, to to you know you might have a person in mind. Like for me, right now at the moment, I would I have. There is a person in my mind, uh, somebody who is a bit newer in my life, um, who I've you know met through my gym, in fact. Um, and if my work situation were to shift, you know, in the next few years, you know, back into a management role or or, or in any kind of different way, I've already got my mindset on this person being. My that's she's going to be my peeps. You know, Mm. she is somebody that I uh, I I like listening to. I like what she has to say. She's in a a job that uh, puts her in as a role model for me, Um, and I've already kind of got that that person earmarked uh, you know for somebody that I might want to move towards as a mentor for me at some stage and I think that our nursing students you know if you yeah, if that person if, if you haven't got the right person but there is somebody in your life you know or they might be peripheral to your life but you need to draw them in a bit closer be courageous and go and ask them you know because I think it's really important they can only say no and that's okay you yeah know? but if they don't say no you're just going to get so much out of that relationship
0: like you said, find your peeps.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear that you think should be replaced with more useful or modern information?
1: Uh, oh, I'll go back to uh, to uh, our blood banking for that one, I think. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really hard for me to listen to um, uh, other, uh, well, we might be... Consult him with another veterinary clinic on a transfusion, a potential transfusion case, you know. So if a clinic isn't in a position to, to refer the patient to us, you know, it might be a distance issue. We're quite geographically challenged here in WA. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's very, very hard to try and make people recognize that blood typing and if at all possible and particularly with cats cross-matching is absolutely essential you know you you can't transfuse a cat without blood typing them and we i still will have conversations with more often than not it might be nurses at conferences or if if i've presented somewhere and, and nurses have come up to chat to me afterwards and they're I reiterate through my presentations the the need to blood type on every occasion, uh, and to cross match where we can. Recognising that that is a a, a a an applied diagnostic that many clinics might not be in a position to perform, but I do find it really difficult when I uh, when I'm you know, it's, it's hard when nurses are saying you know my my clinic won't they won't type and they'll just bring in uh, one of the staff's pets. Cat mm-hmm. or dog, and just go ahead and collect blood from them and, and give it to the the recipient uh, without knowing what danger we're putting that recipient in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, yeah, there's there's still a lot of myth around. Um, do we need to blood type? Uh, the answer to that is, yeah, we absolutely do. And, you know, it goes without saying for cats uh, and for dogs. You know, that whole concept of is the first transfusion transfusion free? Well, you know, technically, well. It is. However, without a doubt, we might start an antibody process in a dog uh, that um, is DEA positive uh, that is then going to have further reactions to a DEA negative blood donor because we've given it a bag of DEA negative in the first instance rather than actually blood typing it and being gold standard and giving it the the type specific blood that it needs.
0: And owners don't always have the whole history either do they you know we've got rescue pets that may have joined a family at an older age or even you know at two or three um but sometimes just the, you know, maybe it was the, the, the dad that brought the dog when it ate rat bait the first time, and now it's the mum the second time, and it's been hit by a car. And, and the mum doesn't realise that part of the treatment for the coagulopathy was um, administering a blood product. And so, if you're taking that history and she says no, well, she doesn't know. Like, this is somebody who's stressed out, their dog's been hit by a car. Taking that history isn't a hundred percent way to say, is this the first transfusion?
1: Oh, that's exactly right. And, uh, yeah, and there, are, there's, there are those loopholes. You can't close them. You know they're there. You know, so the best that we can do at our end is to provide all of the appropriate steps. You know, to uh, limit the chance of that that patient you know, having any more risk through the process of, of having those products transfused. You know, we can only ask those questions, yeah. And, and you know, because we are um, in such an amazingly generous world of people taking on these older rescue dogs, you know, mm. and, and now in particular, none of the rescue homes have got dogs or cats in them because they've all been fostered out, which is just wonderful. Mm. Um, but we, we certainly will see, we will see more of that uh, in the future because of the current situation that we're going through.
0: Mm. And if we have clinics that are resistant to, to doing typing and cross-matching, is it any benefit at least uh, blood typing, say, the nurses who have these dogs that are regularly brought in, at least typing them and looking for universal donors? Is there any benefit in at least doing one side or do we really need to be doing both parties every time?
1: Oh, there There is benefit. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a realist and, I, I you know, these things irk me, but I, I recognise that... Um, Sometimes you've just got to do the best you can do. And mm. uh, and I think we owe it to our staff's pets. If they are going to be coming on board as donors purely because they are staff pets, um, mm. we need to be taking care of all of their preventive health needs as a reward for mm. the service that they provide us. Um, and I, I have had conversations in the past uh, with uh, nurses that have been... You know, quite unhappy about where things have ended up with their own pets. You know, being put into this situation where they haven't felt like they could say, um, "Oh, you know, I think that they should still be in a bit of a rest period," or Mm. you know, they're perhaps still, you know, made to uh, cover the cost of uh, some aspects of their their pets' preventive health. You know, I think that that's a little bit short-sighted, and I think that that's something that our As a clinic, you know, it it certainly makes a lot of sense to use our staff's pets as their donors. You know, if they're fit, healthy, and they're in the right weight and age category, absolutely, Mm. why not? You know, but let's make that a win-win situation so that everybody's happy. And, uh, And certainly having them on record as having been... Uh, blood typed and having you know the the standard CBC um, biochemistry every year as a part of a health check for them, so that we know they are a really healthy donor to donate, would be the very very least
0: definitely so if you're one of those nurses who gets asked to bring your dog in um talk about what 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 your pet is getting you know as a reward um, for their services and your services um and yeah definitely be pushing to be providing the best um the best practice possible or the best standards possible within our within our clinic so and um, and cat
1: let's i mean let's uh, cats are the other really interesting one because um when a cat needs a transfusion uh I'm not sure what it's like in um, other states, but a lot of cats come to us because we're now quite well known for always having blood in our bank for cats. We pack our cells, so we have uh, longevity of storage, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, again, being realistic, the uh, uh, clinics uh, that might have either the clinic cat or, you know... uh, vets and nurses pet cats um mm-hmm. because our cats have to have a sedation at uh, unless you've got this absolutely amazingly chilled out you know 10 kilo main Coon that will just <laughs> lie on the table <laughs> and have a donation on, which i have to tell you we do have uh, <laughs> and i've actually seen uh, seen this happen at the Royal Vet College in the UK which was super impressive mm-hmm. um but unless that's the case and your cat is receiving a, a small sedation in order to donate uh, Having their hearts checked, uh, you know, and making sure that they, you know, are not borderline for HCM is really important, and that would mm-hmm. again be a preventative program for for these cats. We mycoplasma is out there, you know, it's that silent, uh, silent. Um, uh, uh, a condition that we can't easily check for uh, and it's difficult to screen and you know have our results there immediately but we we do want to take care of our staff's pets as well as the the recipient that's going to receive that blood so having a conversation about what can we do to protect these donors you know if they are our staff's pets uh, mm. for cats as well as dogs is just as important
0: Mm. So the takeaway, looking after our donors um, and also blood typing and cross-matching where possible. Um, yeah, absolutely. Good, good advice. Now, in what ways do you look after your mental well being? And we've talked about some of those, like going to the gym um, is a great one. And if you're feeling overwhelmed about work or life, what do you do? Uh,
1: well, I, I'm i quite a pragmatic person and I've... <laughs> I, I've I, don't tend to. I don't tend to stress too much about too many things that I cannot control. If I can't control something, if it's something that is out of my control, that I'm not going to be able to do something about, I can quite easily uh, recognise that and say, you know, that that is going to pan out the way it's going to pan out. Um, I will do everything that I can to make that a best situation but i'm I, I just am not able to stress about those things i think working uh, having spent a bit of a, a lifetime working in um first uh, zoos and then in emergency you know and in the zoos we had so many quite scary emergencies you know with dangerous animal situations uh unpredictability with um yeah you know you might think that you're going to be Doing a, a simple range of procedures on the day, and then th- before you know it, you've got an East Tasman elephant at two hours' notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I got very, very good at calming down very quickly. You know, mm. when I knew things were going to, uh, to to have the potential to get out of hand. I'm quite process orientated, uh, so I find it quite easy mentally to break things down straight away. So I can break things down. Uh, I might think. Who is going to be impacted by my actions? Uh, That's a priority. So I want to make sure that I cover uh, the least uh, impact that I can uh, for others. Uh, What can I control and what can I get achieved now so that things can move forward? Uh, What can't I control that is a bit out of my hand and that is going to have to be dealt with on an as-needs basis and I refuse to stress about that until that Mm. actually hits me and then I will need to just act accordingly. I think... That approach has always held me in very good stead. Mm. I have um, life's pretty busy. Uh, my husband's a firefighter, so he he was in the zoo industry as well, but he he changed careers uh, about six years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's he's, you know, he goes off to work, and i never really quite sure what his day is going to look like either. But um, he's he can come home often having had not the greatest of day with whatever he, he's been exposed to uh we we talk a lot you know we we have a lot of common ground and we have a lot of humor in our lives i i think i'm really funny you know, i don't know that if he thinks so <laughs> <to say. laughs> uh but humor is a massive part of our life at home our kids are uh our kids have a great sense of humor they're very spirited and uh uh someone once said to me oh your kids are really confident aren't they and I was like I know what that means (laughs) (laughs) is that Uh, a
0: euphemism
1: yeah but I think uh humor is 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 absolutely appropriate for maintaining a really good mental health you know and I'm not I'm not I don't I, I won't use humor inappropriately, you know, but I'm certainly uh, might be the first one to crack a tiny little joke in a really <laughs> stressful situation uh, to ease off a little bit. But I, I feel like over the years, as I've got older and matured and been exposed to, you know, some significant life experiences that I'm, I'm more inclined to read the situation. And I, I, I definitely think that that holds me in good stead.
0: It's a good way to find your peeps, too, isn't it? Just slipping in like a tiny little dry kind of joke and seeing who who reacts and who doesn't. And you're like, oh, yeah, you can take the temperature of the room and see see who your people are because I'm really gravitate towards people who can make me laugh and who can appreciate, you know if I crack a joke too. So yeah, it definitely is a way to put the cat amongst the pigeons, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and and uh, look, you know I, I like I said, I'm very mindful of yeah, gauging the current status and you know, sometimes you kind of it's it's there, it's on the tip of your tongue and then you think yeah, no, this is just not the right moment for
0: this <laughs> yeah <laughs> inappropriate maybe later yeah. i um i love all of those recommendations so control you know controlling what's within our scope and not seeking to control anything beyond that and just dealing with what is right in front of us and you know staying calm and also maintaining a sense of humor um, and remembering to laugh as good medicine so um, all fantastic advice what do you think is the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement
1: you know i think that there is so much Ongoing work being done to improve the uh, the training of veterinary nurses, and I, I also think that we uh, have explored and addressed the issue of uh, ongoing education after um, after our nurses have graduated and uh, and where they can go from there. Um, but I also recognise that that's not a, it's not a still not a done deal, you know, and there are more. Um, aspects of um, pro- career progression uh, that can be addressed. Um, I have uh, always been an advocate for uh, nurses uh, being uh, remunerated appropriately um, and I think mm-hmm. that uh, that can always be uh, always be looked at, you know, always. We've got to move with the times and it is still frustrating that, um, that th- there's the recognition of you know what is involved in um, in taking on this really important role in our industry, and uh, and and being accountable for that is uh, it, it's a slow process. I would love to see uh, national registration compulsory. Uh, mm. I would advocate for that without a doubt. Uh, and uh, you know our situation here in Western Australia is that we have compulsory registration, and it's um, it's. Uh, we don't know any different here. You know, it is what it is. Um, I would like to see that there is some way that West Australian Veterinary Surgeons Board can come to the party on a national level, mm-hmm. that we can offer our expertise as to how that has been successful. Uh, I certainly think that there's areas to improve with that. And I think that the model that the Veterinary Nurses Council is, uh, has introduced and is built in is a very, very good model. I would just like to see that nationwide, and I want to see it compulsory.
0: I would love that too. And you're right, at the moment, we've got nurses in WA who need to be registered um, within Western Australia, um, because it's part of part of the legislation. Um, But then they're trying to also perhaps support the AVNAT scheme and register um, on the national scheme, but we're trying to get as many people doing the voluntary registration under the national scheme to start lobbying states to um, make that legislation all uniform and so that we can all have, um, you know, I guess the same compulsory registration. So it's definitely not easy what they're doing um, and I think they're doing a fantastic job as well. So the remuneration that you touched on, that's such a big issue and I think that that's why we lose a lot of nurses, and I I suspect it's probably also why we don't have as much uh, male representation. Um, and it's an it, it's an issue for the whole industry because in order to provide more 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 um, generous remuneration to our nurses, we need to increase the bottom line of businesses on a whole. And we're not the best at running profitable businesses. Our narrow our, our margins are very narrow like I have a friend um, who owns a pharmacy and recently we were having a chat um, and I was saying that with COVID-19 we were really busy we are really busy however things are very inefficient because we're zero client and we've got people out in their cars and we've got nurses you know helping the vets in consults with animals whereas usually the owners would be doing that so with the inefficiency although we're busy we're we're having issues with our margins because um, we're having blood Outs And things are taking a lot longer. So I was saying to her, you know, our wage to income ratio has fallen outside um, of this bracket that it needs to sit in. And she's like, whoa, that's a high, that's a really high bracket there. You know, we, we don't run nearly at that with pharmacies. So although pharmacists are paid much more than vets, they still have a lower percentage of wage to overall income. So, I mean, we're just such a big business with so many moving parts. We need so many hands on deck um, and we, we run with narrow margins. So I think that an industry, our industry as a whole, needs to improve that so that we can start remunerating vet nurses more generously, vets more generously, um, rather than almost being like where we're doing this community service role, where okay, we'll take less money than our human counterpart because we love animals.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean that that's got a shelf life, you know, and it's uh, our our industry suffers through that because our nurses are will not stay in the industry um if uh, if it's not financially viable for them um you know and it kind of it all ties back in you know if we you know that recognition of compulsory registration that's a you know that's a a step in the right direction for then connecting that to you know what what is an appropriate income to earn and um And, you know, out of that we get, you know, people that have longevity of service. And when we get longevity of service, you know, we get teams that are really well formed and that are highly experienced. And then our services uh, to our clients is even better. And it's just all tied in. So it's just so connected.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and then part of that too is showing clients the really polished service that we can provide when we don't have people coming in and out of the industry all the time and, and having the confidence to stand behind that and then having the confidence to say, we're um, we're going to charge you for this vet nurse consult because um you know this veterinary nurse has these skills necessary to come and do this um this body assessment and then recommend a diet or or whatever it is that they're doing so i agree it's also so very linked um and and i guess we talked about mentors earlier and is there a particular mentor that's helped you in your career and personal development in the industry um, that you would like to give a nod or a shout out to just to wrap things up today michelle
1: uh oh gosh <laughs> i've been around for a while i've got a few <laughs> um I, I think if i could break it down into probably um clinical support and personnel support it would be that would be how i would see this because i've got um you know I, I spent a really really long time working with um the head vet at Perth Zoo, so, um, simone Vitali, and she was uh has ha- and still is we don't work together anymore um but um she's always a, a, a fantastic mentor for me um at on a clinical level uh we uh, we did a lot of things together um and we did a lot of really exciting things together at the zoo uh, and always um found simone to just be uh Uh, just so grounding for me as far as um, you know giving me so much leeway to work through uh, you know new clinical knowledge and um, and a really healthy respect uh, I guess between the two of us as to what we brought to that to the table you know in that team and um, yeah she's, she's an amazing person. The other person that I would like to mention is, um, and you know, probably a number of people that listen to your podcast might already be familiar with Jane Bindloss. And uh, Jane, I met when I started on the Veterinary Nurses Council uh, of Australia, and um, Jane's probably one of the uh, one of the most amazing people, persons <laughs> that <laughs> I know, and I, I think I really um, respect how she is able to mentor without necessarily knowing that she's mentoring, Um, guiding and uh, challenging and encouraging. um, And I I have learned and I still learn so much from her on just – People management you know dealing mm. with people and uh and insight into into people and and you know what makes them tick and how we get the best out of uh, out of our people around us you know and that's not just work you know that's just our personal life as well you know because uh i, I think that if both are in balance it just makes life really enjoyable
0: that's true actually jane's on my list because carol bradley mentioned her <laughs> in response to this question as well and yeah, you know i just i hear her name all the time so she's definitely somebody who i am really intrigued to learn more about so um, and I, I'll put a link to Murdoch Uni where you're working as well um, so that people can see where you are. I guess if anybody is um, setting up blood banks in their own clinics or, or you know, want to, to know how to be pointed in the, in the right direction to learn more about um, blood donor programs, um, is that okay if they, they give you a shout out or, or look at what you're doing at the uni?
1: Oh absolutely. I'm very happy to, to um to be contacted. I I'm really happy to help. Yeah.
0: Excellent. I'll put a link to that. And I will also put a link to Perth Zoo and Free the Bears and a few other things that we chatted about um, because I think that people will be um, – there's so much to take in of, of your career and I'm sure we've only just actually touched upon it. So <laughs> if people want to, to learn more about any of those things that you've been involved in, um, that will set them in the right direction. But um, it's been really nice catching up. And as I said to you when we were sound checking, a couple of people recommended recommended you to me as well. So I've been looking forward to catching up. And I hope you're going to have a nice um, family day with your um, husband and kids. Are you off to the beach?
1: I think that's the plan. I think everybody's locked in the house at the moment so that they don't disturb me. I'm out in the garden. Do um, not but
0: go near yeah, mum.
1: I know. I ha- I, I'll go and find out but it's about 29 degrees here today so I'm pretty sure the beach is on the cards.
0: Beautiful. My husband's been trying to keep my kids away from me too and we're heading out for, for a swim as well. So um, yes, I think all of our um, kids will be relieved they can make noise and do whatever. Agreed. (laughs) Well, it's been really nice hearing all about your career and I'm sure we will cross paths again down the track once we're allowed to travel and move around again and see each other at conferences.
1: Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me, Kat. I've I've enjoyed this.
0: Me too. I've enjoyed it a lot. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.